CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Technology is changing parenthood, from children raised by smartphones to making choices about gene editing and enhancement. Melanie Challenger asks, what does it mean to be a parent in the technological age? Melanie Challenger is a researcher on the history of humanity and the natural world and works on environmental philosophy. Her latest book, How to Be an Animal, A New History of What It Means to Be Human, was published in 2021. If you enjoy today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. It's now time to welcome Melanie Challenger to Philosophy for Our Times. So in this talk, I'm going to be talking about how technology might affect two different parts of parenting. So the conception early years of childhood, so the sort of biological infancy stage where biology you know, really rules. And then the educational years, so more the social formation bit. Now, obviously biology is still being affected by what we do in our education. It affects us in our bodies, but we're gonna be talking, uh, but we think about it more as, as where we've got more option to form us with our ideas and our education systems. So my own background is actually in environmental philosophy more and environmental history, but I moved into bioethics. So. What I'm not is a scientist, so we're going to have a little dive where we need to know sufficiently in the science that's affecting us, but I can't answer any of your deep questions about how the science works. We're going to talk more overview about what's, what's on the horizon, which in our ethics sort of work, that's what we do. We have to scan roughly what's going to affect us and think about how, how we can approach it. So the first thing we sort of have to think about as parents is what, what actually are we? So. I like to think about us a little bit as fruiting bodies. So as you know, with a mushroom, the organism is actually under the surface. You have the mycelium under the surface. And the odd thing about us is if we can think about how we reproduce as an organism, what we can see is kind of like the fruiting body. So we're the bit that is noticed by another of our kind, and we meet and we reproduce and we have babies. But the interesting question about us and how it affects the technologies affect us and how they affect our value system is, what's our mycelium type thing? Is it our genome? Is it our value systems? What's the invisible part of us that we are the fruiting body of? So this is an idea that's gonna recur. So what kind of parents are we biologically? So there's lots of different parent-child models across nature, and some are not so great. even when they're super cute. So for instance, here we've got black bears. If they only have one child, they will abandon the child because it's so high energy to do the work of parenting in the early stages that they just think, really worth the effort. So the tension between the adult and the baby 
they're just like, maybe not, not going to do this. They, they want a larger brood. Now, with, and that's to do with their environment. So, you know, patchiness of prey, energy costs, all of that kind of thing. Now, with the pandas, they will abandon and focus just on the ones. So they do intensive um, focusing just on one child. So high intensive, high focus parenting, basically because their bamboo is really poor in nutrients. So in, for them, their kind of parenting model all straps on basically, um, I've got a stronger baby here, so I'm gonna focus on that one. So different, you know, what, what affects us? I mean, we are actually still very affected by biology in our parenting in lots of different kinds of ways. We are still affected by energy like them and resources. There are lots of different kinds of parent-child models around the world, but there are all kinds of ways our biology still affects us. For instance, you know, if there's if you're biologically related to your child, if you're not biologically related to the child in the household's higher risk of abuse, for instance, puberty onset can be earlier in female children if there's a non-related male in the household. So our biology actually still affects us and we're gonna look at the ways in which technology is really kind of intruding on that. What I was saying to you about the way that biology still affects us, you know, in the past, in terms of what we thought was the best way to be a parent, if you were very affluent in classical Egypt, in ancient Egypt, for instance, you would often have a wet nurse to do the breastfeeding. Whereas if you were from a poorer family, you would certainly, you know, breastfeeding your own child, probably be breastfeeding other people's children. If, throughout a lot of the kind of early stages of parenting in, in human history, predominantly learning takes place through proximity and pursuing the tasks that, that you're father or mother have done, and usually through observation. And that still affects us now. We'll come on to that a little bit later, but we actually still learn slightly better through physical observation and gesture, even really abstract things like mathematics. We actually learn better through physical enactment and through observation. So someone writing on a blackboard, for instance, would make a difference. But obviously, we're now here at the Automated Parenting, you know, we've had lots of different ways of interacting with what we think is best for our children. So in classical Greece, for instance, they kind of thought you weren't really a legal person until you were accepted into the family in a kind of formal sense. And we, we can't go back and absolutely ask everybody, but the evidence is, you know, that children in some sorts of rights as infants would be left on a rock to kind of survive. And if they made it through the night, they would be accepted into the family. And then they would become a legal person who we would then think about educating and entering them into the polis, into the kind of wide society. All the way through these different parenting norms, though, we're still always balancing those energy and uh, the questions of energy uh, that, that all organisms face. Today, though, we live in really, really unprecedented times. So we're still, all of these ancient difficulties that we face are now being influenced by technologies that most of us sort of little understand. So I said at the opener, didn't I, that I kind of, I'm not a scientist. In the work that I do in bioethics, I'll be faced with really complex, new frontier technologies. Most of us, even on that committee, don't really understand them and yet we have to somehow decide how they're going to affect us. As parents, we have to somehow make choices about how 
We allow new technologies to influence the becoming of our child right at conception through to how we educate them. It's a very difficult time, and at the moment, it's just kind of creeping in without any of us understanding the implications or really knowing how we can make choices about them. So we'll look at the first part of it. So a few different parts to parenting, as I said, the kind of first heavily biological bit. So how do we make our babies? In Denmark in 2003, they made prenatal screening for Down syndrome available to any parent who wanted to have it. Now, the screening's pretty, pretty good, but obviously it's not going to perfectly guarantee that your baby would definitely have Downs or not. But what they found was that when they opened it out for anybody in society, 95% of individuals who received a positive marker for Downs decided to abort. So Down syndrome, which um, basically is, I mean, it's, a, it's an extra chromosome. You know, it's very varied in how this syndrome will work out. It, it can be really very mild in its effect on the individual, or it can come with some complications, but it's not a life sentence. But once you have the egg medicalized in that kind of way, and a parent is stuck having to make this choice, doesn't really understand how the test has worked, but is being told in this medical, medicalized setting, nearly everyone will choose that their, their parenting choice is, okay, I'm making my best rational choice here, and I'm going to elect to abort. So Down syndrome is really heading towards sort of extinction um, for many individuals uh, now, many countries. And increasingly, what we've seen with prenatal screening is state action like that. You know, so you, you get this invention that we hope helps uh, parents make their early decisions. But it very quickly gets privatized. And then, of course, parents have access, if they're willing to pay, to all kinds of potential screenings, whether good or bad. And their kind of choices go into overdrive. And the egg is medicalized right at that beginning. A lot of our parents probably you know, would have, have, wouldn't even have been able to have the kind of classic um, ultrasound stuff, that, that scanning that we have now. You just you, you did what you could. But now we have really the process is medicalized right from the get-go. Then you've got pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. So IVF emerged in the 1970s. So in 1978, Louise Brown was born, and that was a huge hoo-ha about this, you know, real fears about what these test tube babies, what it meant for our humanity and who we are. Um, but what you find in, in ethics in general is that once that technology is out there, it normalizes actually quite quickly. So I would imagine that for everybody now, IVF feels sort of pretty normal. Now, IVF and those sorts of reproductive technologies, they... Their history is very interesting to look at. So what's driving them? You know, we talked about that kind of what's underneath the fruiting body of us, of our lovely selves. You know, obviously there's that powerful parental desire to have children. I've spoken to couples who've gone through the IVF process many times and the, the desire to have, they don't care how the technology works. They just want to have a baby. And of course, the scientific community will respond to a very powerful need like that. But IVF also maps in with the agricultural industry because the other individuals or commercial industries that are very interested in having a stake in how organisms come into the world are farmers and the agricultural industry. So hand in hand in the 1970s, we end up with IVF. And it seems like this wonderful sort of win-win situation for parents who can't 
have children, much, much wanted children. But once you have a process where you are fertilizing an egg outside of the body, and then you can implant it, you have all of these other things that emerge. So we have the new status of the embryo. You have multiple embryos that emerge through IVF. In America these days, there's probably more than, I mean, many millions of embryos frozen in, in storage just in America alone. And for many parents, they don't really know how, what relationship should they then have to those embryos that they didn't choose to implant? Do they have them destroyed after a certain time? Do they keep them? Do they allow them to be used for medical testing? The other option is that you then have the egg outside to look for genetic problems. So we have pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and what's followed from that is of course the risk that we can design children on our own terms. Procreative autonomy, so is it right to have children for starters? Do we have the right? And technologies, when they've created these unforeseen consequences, can complicate what it is to be a parent. The third one here is IVG. So IVG is a real frontier technology. It's in vitro gonetogenesis. So what it means is, it was first shown in mice, you can take a skin cell, for instance, and you push it into becoming a stem cell, and then you can make eggs from the cell. So it's a way of taking other cells, putting them through a process to make them these, the, um, those plastic cells that we have from which sex cells can be grown. And now, IVG is still in the experimental stage, so it's been proven to work in mice. So we've made mouse babies from the mum's skin cells. What this means, though, in the future is that while IVF made this sort of surplus of embryos that you can test and decide which is, you know, in shop for and what have you, IVG allows for a kind of farming of embryos on quite a large scale. So, CRISPR-Cas9. So this is a new discovery, such found by accident, um, that's the immune system of bacteria. So bacteria's main virus are bacteriophages. And they figured out that, bacteria, by accident, that these bacteria have these, uh, this, these sort of molecular scissors to snip a bit of the DNA. And CRISPR, what CRISPR can now do for us is make precision genome editing. So we ended up with the two babies in China that were born in 2018, where the germline, that they had had a heritable change in their genome. This is the first time this has ever happened through CRISPR. But what CRISPR and IVG and these new frontier technologies allow is a potential era, era where we can enhance, we can screen and we can choose and we can enhance. And it really complicates all of those early biological years of being a parent. And the question here is, how intelligent as parents are we likely to be? What kind of designer are we gonna be? What is that invisible network under the surface of parental desire of our values? Um, are we the best kind of parent to deal with these new technologies? You know, some, some have argued that we need parenting licenses just to parent, but you imagine what it's like. How do we even judge the sorts of decisions that you would make? if you could choose what the best child looks like. And how do we design if we're not free from everything that's designed us? So this is where we're gonna leap through. How do we make good decisions if we ourselves are shaped by an imperfect kind of social system? So this is where we're gonna leap rapidly into the second part of this. So how we then teach our children. So there's no general agreement, this is Aristotle, about the young, what the young should learn in relation to virtue or the best life, nor is it clear whether education ought to be directed towards the intellect or towards the soul. This is Aristotle like 2,300 years ago in politics. 
Um, we've always wondered how best to choose um, to teach our children what they should learn, who or what shapes their thoughts. It's always been complicated. We've always been building on kind of inheriting an imperfect model, an imperfect society, if you like. But now that we have the internet and new technologies, that sort of invisible parents that are and sort of sources of influence on our children's lives have got many times more complicated. So across the 20th century, the world's economies and technologies have transformed. In particular, from the 1980s, the push, and this, you know, this is all there in the archives, this is all discussed by our governments, we realized that we had to sort of respond to the new industrial revolution, the kind of new technologies coming through. This is the third industrial revolution, the digital era. And the consensus was that we should get our education systems to prepare our children to become consumers of the digital world. Again, you know, as I said, we've always tried to think about how we shape our decision makers in life. Do we want our children to inherit traditional forms of sort of universal education, or do we want to teach them to be critical thinking, complex system shapers? Do we want them to transform our society or just consume and work for our society. These days, um, we've kind of seen this in the pandemic, haven't we? They've actually been contemplating for years how much should we put tech into our, you know, how much should we be using tech? Um, you know, the kind of Australian bring your own device um, model of, of schooling and this big dream that technology and the internet will teach, make teaching more efficient itself and will democratize knowledge as much as possible because many, many more people learn and have access to education than ever before in human history. And we've seen, many people have sort of seen technology as the key thing that will shape our children. Um, but do we learn better online? You know, we, we're living through an experiment right now because we just had a year and a half of having all of us having to be online and imagining what a totally technologized existence might be like. I, I did a quick search, right, on, on a sort of literature review on all of the research on whether we learn better online. And I found, just even published on the same day, two completely opposite. We're all getting dumber, you know, because of using technology. We're all getting smarter because of using technology. What we know, so there's masses of uncertainty, often with the data for parents deciding about learning online, it really is coming down to um, how good the research question is and what it is that we're looking for. What we have found is that in various tests, children don't, if they're reading on screen versus reading on paper, they tend to learn better on paper. So then it was about trying to find out, well, why, why are they learning better on paper? What they think, and you know, jury's out, but what they think is partly it's to do with the, the screen flicker versus ambient light. So how our eyes actually are then receiving information and then able to respond. But they also think it's to do with scrolling, that we can go back and forward in a book between the bits of information and intelligently source them. But on the screen, it's harder to, to go backwards and forwards when you're scrolling back. So they think that's what the effect was largely about. But they also think that online learning, in a similar way to video games, so with video games, again, you Google video games and, and whether they are good or bad for us, and you will get, they're really bad for us, data in new scientists, they're really great for us in science or whatever. Actually, when you look into the fine print of, of what they're actually finding, let's say your classic shoot, shoot em up game, makes if good is, you know, with no value, you know, critical value thinking here. If good is taken to mean 
certain kinds of hand-eye coordination, certain ways of um, being kind of visually responsive, you know, vis visual sort of motor response times, brilliant. You're going to get better at that. But when you look at, say, critical thinking, say, slow thinking, not so good. And that's not even getting on how, how this time on screen is affecting the well-being of young people. We saw in the news probably the, face, the Instagram that your Facebook had kind of tried to bury their research into depression and anxiety, particularly with young users of Instagram. You know, we're at really early stages, and the research is, I, I would urge nobody to take the research, you know, too seriously at this stage. Use your intuitions. I think we, we understand that um, this will be affecting our young people's brains. But really, for me, the question is, why are we using screens to educate young people? So going right back to Greece, ancient Greece, you know, the early education systems, the kind of becoming of our children, was about educating in the home to then, um, and then in the school, as an extension of that, to then shape them to be members of society at large. And that's really been the process of education. The dream of civilization has been to change us from the outside in and make us better and more productive members of our society. But we know that screens actually probably don't make it easier to learn a lot of what we're learning. They have a massive role in our lives and, that's, and they, they can democratize some forms of knowledge. But is it the way our, what our children should be doing with their time? In the pandemic, our amount of screen time increased by about five hours a week. Children use, you know, spend upwards of two hours every day after school on their screens and another three hours at the weekend. And who, you know, everything that we're doing is about that, you know, um, trying to shape our children to affect the world. But what we've got here is an economic model in which our four richest individuals in the world build and make screens. So we don't have monarchs anymore. We don't have our politicians ruling the world. Our, our world is, and I'm, I'm not being extreme, our world is shaped by people who build technology. And it is making them staggeringly rich. And they are observing everything our children do online. And they're mining that for information to figure out how to get our children online even more. And they're looking at algorithms to get them buying things that they'll do online more and use things online more and think certain things and like certain things. These people in Silicon Valley have become our parents. They are the ones who are shaping our children now. So we're outsourcing our thinking. You know, I talked about energy right at the beginning. Why do we use screens as well? Because they're great. They're like super helpful. They make our energy work efficiently for us. They outsource our thinking and they outsource some of our parenting. How many people have said, please watch some form of Peppa the Pig and stop shouting at me right now? Everyone does it because it helps us in our parenting and in the energetic costs of parenting. But we do have to ask questions about who is doing the thinking, who is doing the teaching, and who is doing the learning, because we have less transparency in that than we've ever had before. So to finish, I think for me, what troubles me about where we're at now is that our ability to influence our children, to pass on our biology to them, and to 
pass on our values to our children are being massively disrupted by technologies and by um, innovations that we little understand. So I think it's, it's time for us to decide how how we want our children to come into the world. And, you know, in bioethics, my great concern is the ethics itself. You know, it's very rare that everyone in the, in the room can get involved in decision-making, decision-making about something like IVG. How many of you guys would have any idea how to get involved in influencing decision-makers or scientists about a new technology like that? How many of you feel you would have any power over the technologies that are shaping your children's lives? I would imagine, like me, that you feel pretty powerless, and I work in ethics, and I still feel powerless. We need to, instead of democratizing just education, we need to democratize uh, empower all of our citizens to be uh, better informed about what's on the horizon and what's influencing our lives and better able to exercise their own agency to express their own values and to not have a few of the decisions that are affecting the, our lives and the lives of our children in the hands of just a few people who, who you know, have a stake in it um, rather than us. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.